Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome once again to the 50 Years Ago on Hockey podcast, and this is episode number 112 in our weekly series. I'm your host, Rick Cole, and every week, right here on the Hockey Podcast Network, we take a trip back uh, in time, 50 years, down memory lane, if you will, to bring you all the hockey news from that time period exactly as it happened and written in the words of some of the greatest sports writers of all time. In this episode, we're in the week of December 13th to 19th, 1971. Now, if you like what we do here every week on the podcast and every day on our Twitter account, you can help us out by going to patreon.com slash hockey50years to subscribe to the podcast. Our subscribers not only get early access to every week's free podcast, but we get some really interesting uh, special content that we put out several times a month. Uh, Some of the stuff uh, involves the progress the WHA was making to get off the ground with special reports from the cities that are involved, and we take a look at uh, other issues of the day in greater detail. So that's patreon.com slash hockey 50 years to subscribe to the podcast and also don't forget our uh, local sponsor the breakwall brewing company of downtown port coburn ontario and of course newspapers.com who make all this possible with the access they give us to all their files So this week, uh, 50 years ago, began with, uh, I guess what you could say, uh, well, it was a lot of junior hockey news that was interest actually all hockey fans. The Toronto Marlboros of the Ontario Hockey Association Junior A Series, I guess they decided to give themselves an early Christmas present. They announced that Mark Howe, the other hockey-playing son of the great Gordie Howe, had signed a contract to play with the Marlies team. Now, his brother Marty is already with the Marlies as a defenseman. Mark was a forward. The second son of Gordie Howe reluctantly signed with the Marlboros manager, Tommy Smythe. What Tommy did is he made a flying trip to Detroit on the weekend before this week actually began for the specifically purpose of acquiring Mark's services. Mark would prefer to play hockey in his native Detroit this season and then join the Marlies next year when he would then be reunited with Marty. Uh, What happened, though, however, was that the junior A owners of the OHA are contemplating changes in their priority selection draft of overage midget players, and they're going to do this for next season. One change would involve the drafting of United States players, which could mean that the Howe boys would be separated via the draft, and they would have to play for different teams in the OHA against each other. Many years later, a similar situation would arise in the NHL with a couple of twins from Sweden. So you see, that's the reason why Mark signed with the Marlboros this week, just to be sure he could play his junior hockey with Marty, who has two seasons of eligibility after this one. Mark, well, of course, had three junior seasons remaining after this term. Well, you can imagine what happened in the ranks of the OHA Junior A series. 
other club owners are saying, hey, why does Toronto get such a great prospect like Mark Howe for no good reason at all? Well, it turned out there were several large meetings and Gord Walker of the Globe and Mail reported a couple days later that Mark Howe will not be able to play for the Toronto Marlboros this season. The talented son of Gordy Howe uh, must remain with the Detroit Junior Red Wings of the Southern Ontario Junior League. And what happened was the uh, Junior A Council uh, members voted against Howe joining the Marlies simply because the Toronto Marlboros don't own enough midget draft choices to actually pay for them. By way of explanation, it would cost the Marlies their first and second round midget draft choices for two years coming up to sign Mark Howe, whose brother uh, Marty already plays there, as we mentioned. The reason is they're signing him early, so they're going to have to give up something for the uh, uh, circumvention of the rules, if you will. The problem is the Marlies had already uh, traded away their uh, first or second choice in the next midget draft. Uh, this happened in a complicated deal where uh, um, an Eastern Canada junior team folded. The players were distributed throughout the rest of uh, Canadian junior hockey in the East, and the Marlies gave Oshawa their draft choice so they could get the man they wanted, who was goalie Kevin Neville, who is starring for the Marlies this year. So that's not going to happen this year. Mark Howe is not going to Toronto, but the Marlies thought they were going to get him. A little bit more Junior A news on this early part of the week on Monday morning. Uh, misfortune continues to haunt the Peterborough Pizza season. Four members of the Ontario Hockey Association Major Junior A League team were injured Saturday morning in a multiple car accident on Highway 401 at the Don Valley Parkway in Metro Toronto. The most seriously injured was rookie defenseman Paul McIntosh. Paul received a broken ankle and a fractured kneecap. We really hope that doesn't jeopardize his hockey career. Pete's coach Roger Nielsen said that he expects McIntosh is going to be out for the remainder of the season. Defenseman Mike St. Cyr received a concussion and facial bruises. Forward Billy Evo needed 15 stitches to close a gash on his ankle and he's going to be out for two to three weeks. The fourth player, big defenseman Jim Turkowitz, received minor cuts and bruises but otherwise escaped serious injury and he was in the uh, lineup on the weekend when the Peets met St. Catharines in St. Catharines. Apparently, McIntosh was the driver of the car. The four who live in the Guelph area were going home from Peterborough for the weekend. There was a little World Hockey Association news to start the week. President Jim Adams of the St. Paul, Minnesota entry into the WHA says that the team in that city will be known as the Minnesota Fighting Saints. The team also announced that it had signed Hamilton, Ontario native Glenn Somnor as the first general manager coach of the team and in fact, this is the answer to a great trivia question. He is the first coach signed by any World Hockey Association team. Glenn at the moment is currently employed as the head hockey coach at the University of Minnesota. And a little side note there, Glenn went to the uh, folks at the university and recommended that the man who should replace him is uh, an insurance salesman by the name of Herb Brooks. The week did start out pretty busy in the uh, news department. Another uh, good news item in uh, early in the week was Montreal and St. Louis hooked up for a one-for-one -one trade. But you had to be careful to avoid confusion as you read the terms of this deal. Montreal sent right-winger Roberto to the Blues for right-winger Roberts. That's right, Roberto for Roberts, Phil Roberto for Jim Roberts. 
Jim Roberts, a 31-year-old native of Port Hope, Ontario, was drafted by the Blues from the Canadians in the 67 expansion draft. Prior to this year, Jimmy had appeared in 512 regular season games. Not a big scorer, 65 goals, 93 assists, but he is a very versatile guy, amazing on the penalty killing, and he always was one of Scotty Bowman's favorites with the Blues when Scotty was coaching and managing the Blues. Roberto is a 22-year-old native of Niagara Falls, and I watched Phil play a lot of junior hockey in Niagara Falls and St. Catharines for the Falls Flyers. He's been a part-time performer for the Canadians for much of this season. He's only got three goals and two assists in 27 uh, games, but he is thought to be a very good prospect, and that's why the Blues sit able made this deal. Jim Proudfoot of the Toronto Star says he did a bit of an informal survey with folks around the league and he's discovered that the title of having the worst ice in the NHL now belongs to Memorial Auditorium in Buffalo, New York. I've skated on the odd odd ice many times at that right around that time and I gotta admit that ice was not good, even when you didn't have 15,000 people in the rink, which really made it warm and tough for NHL hockey. Second worst ice, by the way, happens to be uh, Los Angeles. No surprise there. Uh, Jack Kent Cook does not like spending money on things like top flight ice making machines. Tuesday, we got some news about the World Hockey Association's New York franchise, and it wasn't good. Neil Shane, the New York lawyer who doubles as president of the proposed New York WHA team, conceded that he's probably going to have a pretty difficult time fielding a team, or icing a team, as you will, in hockey, for 1972. Shane was in Montreal to appear on the CBC's local evening news program, Hourglass, there. Uh, Shane told CBC, I can't exercise my franchise until I get some play-in dates. The WHA executives are pressing me now for these dates, and I can't find a place to play. Shane admitted that his major problem is time-oriented, uh, time time-sensitive, and he acknowledged that the WHA could conceivably start its operations without a New York team. There will be more on this uh, story coming up later this week and in the coming weeks, lots more to talk about as well with the New York and the WHA. Also on Tuesday, the Maple Leafs got some bad injury news. Young forward Daryl Settler, who's starting to show signs he may be a little better than average NHL player, he's going to miss at least the Leafs' next two games and maybe more because of stretched cartilage over the left ribs. Uh, Coach John McClellan said that Daryl had it for a couple of weeks, but he wasn't get any better, so the decision was made to sit him down. They thought for a while that maybe there was cracked or broken ribs there. That wasn't the case, so Daryl's going to be okay, but he's going to have to miss a few games. Wednesday, the WHA made a little more news as as the day dawned. The uh, Los Angeles franchise announced that they had uh, made a coaching offer, and the fellow who got the offer is a is a guy by the name I had never heard of this guy before, Terry Slater who was at this time coach of the Des Moines team of the International Hockey League. Terry was a longtime uh, International League player. He played in the the lower minors, as we called them back then, the Eastern Hockey League, the uh, International Hockey League. And when the story first came out, uh, Slater denied any knowing anything about it. But within the next uh, little while, he became the second man to be named a World Hockey Association coach of the as-yet-unnamed Los Angeles franchise. Some pretty interesting developments this week uh, 
having very little to do with pro hockey, although many would say this had everything to do with pro hockey, as the Canadian government decided it was going to get involved in how minor hockey was being run in Canada. Health Minister John Monroe and his provincial counterparts agreed to establish a committee to look into some of the abuses prevalent in amateur hockey in Canada. The committee, which will be made up of public servants, is to recommend steps to eliminate such abuses, including either provincial or federal legislation. The agreement came at a federal provincial conference of ministers responsible for sports and recreation. Monroe told a news conference after the closed meeting that there was a general approval of a working paper drafted by the federal government pinpointing the abuses. These abuses included contracts that sometimes require young boys to leave their hometowns to pursue hockey careers and the agreement between the Canadian Amateur Hockey Association and the National Hockey League. Some of the other abuses that uh, are going on, according to Health Minister Monroe, who, by the way, has an airport named after him in Hamilton, Ontario. Some of these other abuses included extremely long schedules, such as in the OHA Junior A Series, where players can play up to 80 games a season, and that according to Monroe, interferes with a boy's education. Contracts in junior hockey, which set salary ceilings of $60 a week, and that would actually uh, still be an issue many years later. Uh, There was also an abuse of apparent control of the NHL over amateur operations through the CAHA-NHL agreement. And in pro-amateur agreement, the payment of draft money to teams for whom the draftee played. The committee doesn't seem to like this. The committee felt it should be paid into the CAHA general funds for the development of hockey instead of just the teams lining their bankrolls. Uh, The committee was also concerned about playing rules designed primarily for professionals imposed on amateur players regardless of age. What they're worried about here, and this would come out a few years later, the body checking, all the other moves that uh, take place in pro hockey. What they're trying to do is indoctrinate your kids into the pro hockey style of game. And they really didn't care about the well-being and the welfare of the young player. Very, very, very few of the young players get to make the NHL, but on the off chance that one out of 10,000 might make it, they want to develop that one to be tough enough to endure the rigors of the professional game. Well, as you can imagine, there was swift reaction to this story uh, from all over the place. Clarence Tubby Schmaltz, the president of the Ontario Hockey Association, vigorously defended his group's Junior A League and has declared that neither the federal government nor the public is aware of some of the problems that actually do exist, according to Schmaltz. He was commenting in an interview on a report that a federal provincial uh, conference had decided with Health Minister John Monroe's agreement to investigate these perceived abuses. Schmaltz said, in defense of the Junior A people, I think the public should be made aware that the Ontario government threatened to put a 10% amusement tax on every ticket sold if there was not a $60 maximum weekly salary for players. The ceiling was one of the items mentioned, as we said earlier, in the uh, press release from Ottawa. This $60 maximum, according to Schmaltz, was put in to protect the arenas and teams from this levy. The government could add this levy even if one player was making more than $60. Now, Schmaltz also went on to defend the educational standards of junior A players and said that teams pay a staggering amount toward tuition fees. Schmaltz said that they have statistics to prove that the scholastic averages of junior A players are above the average of students in almost every city in the league. Any boy who isn't doing well is provided, according to Schmaltz, with a tutor.
And Bill Hunter, the general manager of the Edmonton Oil Kings of the Western Canada Junior Hockey League and a key figure in the new World Hockey Association, he says the federal government should simply stay completely out of amateur sports except, of course, to lend assistance in building facilities. Of course, that assistance would consist of cold, hard cash, which above all is most important to Wild Bill Hunter. Now, Hunter was commenting on that report that we've given you about the government investigating amateur hockey. Hunter said they're welcome to investigate the Western Canada League. All we ask is that they print the facts about our league. What we're getting now from the government isn't the facts, but insinuation that can only serve to undermine the public's confidence in amateur sport. Hunter went on to say, quote, Look at the mess the government has made of the economy in this country. These same people now want to tell us how to run amateur sport. They don't know what they're talking about. That sounds a lot like Bill Hunter. Also on Wednesday, well, we knew Stan Fischler would uh, weigh in on the WHA and the New York issue since Stan is the ultimate insider on all things New York, whether WHA or NHL. And he tells us that the new league has been dealt a severe body blow with Neil Shane withdrawing his New York franchise. Shane says, of course, he's got no place to play. And Fischler says without any place to play, there'll be new, no team in New York. Behind the scenes, though, the ultimate insider Stan Fisher didn't realize that Bill Jennings and others were concocting a plan whereby playing dates in Madison Square Garden and the new Nassau County Coliseum where the NHL's expansion team will play were being offered to a New York franchise and indeed that would come to pass. We don't have it happening this week but it does happen shortly. Here's a story out of Seattle, Washington that has an interesting slant on the future of the Western Hockey League. Reports were circulating in Seattle that the governors of the National Hockey League will shortly announce plans to include the six Western Hockey League teams in an expansion plan to increase membership in hockey's number one major league to 24 cities. Bill McFarlane, president of the WHL acknowledged that he hopes the NHL will shortly accept the six WHL cities entirely as a unit and he also admitted a lack of capital in Seattle is a grave concern to the league. So if you got a team in Seattle that is running out of money, how could you possibly expect the NHL would want to take them on as a franchise. Well, the NHL is meeting in Minneapolis January 29th, and the uh, President Bill McParland of the McFarland of the WHL says he expects something to happen. Now, how does this work in Seattle? Well, Sam Shulman is the owner of the NBA's Seattle Supersonics, and he's announced that he can bring Major League Hockey to Seattle as early as next year if he's granted prime dates in the Seattle Coliseum. He said, however, that his plans don't involve the National Hockey League. So if it's not the NHL, then it must be the WHA, right? Maybe not. Ray McMacken, sports editor of KING-TV, said he has learned that the expansion plan will be announced at the All-Star break in Minnesota for the NHL, and he said Seattle is considered the weakest link in the Western Hockey League because of the city's president-poor economy, uh, bad attendance at the Totems games, and the lack of capital available to pay a $6 million NHL membership now, the other cities in the league are Denver, Phoenix, Salt Lake City, San Diego, and Portland. And it was mentioned in another area that the WHL may actually go on its own as a third major hockey league. Good luck with that, boys. You will remember the uh, K 
case last summer of uh, Los Angeles Kings general manager Larry Regan. He got into some hot water in Quebec, got in a uh, high-speed chase with the Quebec police, was arrested, charged with dangerous driving. Uh, An Eastern Ontario judge was riding in uh, Regan's car with him. He got involved in the fracas, and he was charged with obstructing police. Regan was was, uh, acquitted in a very strange decision. Uh, He was acquitted of all his charges, but Judge Frank Dunlap Dunlap of Renfrew County Court was convicted in his separate trial of obstructing the Quebec police officer, but he wasn't sentenced at the time. That was reserved for a few weeks, and the sentencing actually took place this week. Judge Orville Frenette fined Judge Dunlap, doesn't that sound a little incestuous? Anyway, Judge Dunlap was fined a whopping total of $25 following his conviction for obstructing a police officer. Judge Frenette said, with a wink and a nod, I'm sure, that Judge Dunlap has already been heavily penalized due to the excessive publicity he has received. To my knowledge, Judge Dunlap was not removed from the bench during the time that his case had not been uh, disposed of. Judge Frenette said if it had been an ordinary person who was involved, there would have been little or no publicity, and it is for this reason that I am imposing a nominal fine in a matter which might ordinarily call for a heavier one. In other words, if you're a judge, you get a lower penalty than an ordinary citizen. And this is a case where justice not only must be done, but it must be seen to be done. And in this case, justice did not see anything. Justice was blind in this case. Hey, football fans, I'm sure we all love an action-packed, high-scoring National Football League game. But the latest no-brainer from DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the NFL, you'll be a winner once a single point is scored. That's right. New customers who bet just $1 on any team can score with $100 in free bets. It's that simple. If Sportsbook isn't available in your state yet, you can still get in on the NFL action. Everyone can play for huge cash prizes all season long with DraftKings Daily Fantasy Sports Contests. DraftKings has given all new customers a free shot at millions of dollars in total prizes with their first deposit. Download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now. Use promo code THPN, bet a dollar on any team to score, and win $100 in free bets. If they score... You score with promo code THPN this week at DraftKings Sportsbook, an official sports betting partner of the National Football League. You must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, or Pennsylvania only. And only new customers can take advantage of this. You need a minimum $5 deposit and a $1 wager. One of these specials per customer. Some restrictions do apply. See DraftKings.com slash sportsbook for all the details. Got a gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Some news this week on the uh, proposed World Hockey Association franchise for Ontario. Supposed to be based in Hamilton. And this is... uh, how things started to unravel in Hamilton. Basil Griffiths is a St. Catharines businessman, and he proposed that a 10,000-seat arena for Hamilton's East End at Corner Street of Barton Street and Highway 20, Centennial Parkway. He said he would build the arena, but he wants $24.5 million in leasing fees to build it. But he doesn't want it all up front. Now, he'll take it, 
over 35 years. Griffiths proposed to the Board of Control in Hamilton that he would build the arena on the land that we mentioned at that location. He owns the land. And all he's asking is that the city guarantee guarantee a return of $700,000 a year for 35 years and also that the, the city administer the building. In other words, they handle rentals of ice time. They're probably also going to have to do upkeep, paving parking lots. Who knows what else he wants them to do. He told the board the arena would cost him about $6 million to build, but he assured board members that he could get sufficient private backing for the scheme if the city formally approved his grand scheme. The prime tenant would be, of course, the proposed Hamilton entry in the WHA in which Toronto promoter Doug Michelle and James McCreeth have received a franchise. Now, Griffiths isn't just telling them this so that it can take their time. He stressed that he did not want to have a long delay on the decision by the city because the piece of land he is holding is too valuable to lie dormant for very long. And if you go by there at this intersection, you can see exactly the enormous development that has taken place there. Hamilton Mayor Vic Copps agreed the site was ideal, and he added the city of Hamilton was anxious to get a major arena project started. Mayor Copps said we're expecting some other proposals, and we will get back to you as soon as we can. Uh, Cops went on to say that the financial situation of the city was such that they're going to have to get a much more attractive proposal than what Griffiths was offering to uh, get shovels in the ground for an arena. Cops also said they'd have to get some assistance from the higher governments, meaning, of course, the provincial and the federal governments. And if Mayor Vic Cops' name is familiar to you, he is, uh, it's his name that was first put on the big league arena that was built right in the middle of downtown Hamilton quite a few years later. I always thought uh, Vic Stasiak was a pretty straight-laced guy, you know, a very stern disciplinarian when he when he coached the uh, Philadelphia Flyers. And I thought he was a, a pretty straight shooter as well, not prone to hyperbole we see from everybody else in the hockey world in the early 70s. Well... It looks like Vic has. Now he's uh, coaching in California with what he thinks very few hockey people around to check up on what he says. It looks like Vic has bought into the NEBS's good BS theory in expansion cities with this statement. Vic who was a member of the Uke line while he played in Boston and now coach of the Seals. He's talking about his club's firepower. Vic says, we got guys like Bobby Sheehan who can snap it. He's really something. I mean, quick, quick. He's quicker on the trigger than Simon Nolay, and Nolay was the fastest guy I ever saw up until now. Stasiuk went on to say, that was a hell of a deal Gary Young, the general manager, made with Boston as well, getting Ivan Boldarev. That kid moves out there like Phil Esposito. Ivan Boldrev was a really, really good hockey player. But nobody, including Ivan Boldrev, was Phil Esposito in those days. You know, one team that is really much improved at this stage of the uh, 71-72 season, that was the Detroit Red Wings. Of course, they brought in a new coach this year, Johnny Wilson. And here is what's being said about Johnny Wilson's coaching uh, style. A lot of uh, compliments to uh, Johnny. Uh, One uh, writer said the change in the Wings play and their attitude since Wilson was appointed coach has been nothing short of amazing. And to a man, all the players give the credit to Wilson. Now, you wouldn't expect players to go overboard for a man who doubled their practice time and didn't give them a day off for a month. But guess what? 
The players are endorsing them, and here they are. They're actually fighting for a playoff spot. Offering supporting testimony in the same story is retired Hall of Famer Gordy Howes, now a club vice president. And he says there are two ways of doing everything. You can do something because you want to, or you do something because you have to. Johnny's getting them to do it because they want to, and let's give some bite when he needs it. And the players are giving him that, according to Gordy Howe, they're giving him that bite. A little later in the week, uh, we had a little more WHA news. And this is from the uh, WHA outpost in Dayton, Ohio, where city commissioners voted for Dave Hall Plaza in the downtown area to be the location of an arena that would be built to house the World Hockey Association team planned for that city. But don't get all excited, Dayton. And people were, if you read the Dayton papers, they were really, uh, really happy about becoming a, quote, major league city. But that was just a location approval. There was still question whether an arena actually would get built, and that decision had yet to be made because there were many opponents among the city commissioners and others in in the uh, city of Dayton. They were opposed to the idea of their municipality bankrolling a rink for a pro sports team that as of yet didn't even have one player or even a pair of skates. Late in the week, the Sabres and Kings made the week's second trade. It was a deal of some uh, significance. The Sabres acquired from the Kings veteran defenseman Larry Hillman and right winger Mike Byers and going to the Kings from the Sabres were defenseman Doug Berry, probably their best defenseman up to this point in time, and a minor league right winger by the name of Mike Keeler. Sabres general manager coach Punch Imlach, very familiar with both Hillman and Byers. Uh, they both uh, began or had been around in the Maple Leafs organization. Byers actually came up from the Leafs uh, through the Leafs junior system. And uh, he was thought to be a very good right wing prospect. And Hillman, well, Larry had helped uh, Punch to several Stanley Cups when he was with Toronto. And uh, interesting, Larry also had some very severe contract disputes with Punch Imlac while he was with the Maple Leafs. And it was often thought that Larry put a curse on the Maple Leafs that they would never win another Stanley Cup after their Cup win in 1967. This trade uh, sets a bit of a record, believe it or not. This will be the 11th National Hockey League team that has owned Larry Hillman. He's played for Detroit, Boston, Toronto, Montreal, Minnesota, Philadelphia, Los Angeles, and now Buffalo. Chicago, New York, and Pittsburgh also owned him briefly during a lot of goofy uh, transactions that took place during off-season draft meetings. And uh, each of those teams, Chicago, New York, and Pittsburgh, picked them up and dealt them away before he ever got on the ice with those teams. I don't know if you were at this time, if you were around. I was wondering just how much the the, uh, Stafford Smythe was worth when he passed away on October 13th. Well, he left an estate worth $3,225,013. Smythe's will, which has been filed for probate, leaves the entire estate to his wife, Mary Dorothea, and his four children. Major components of the estate are stocks and bonds worth $2.3 million, his metropolitan Toronto home, which is worth $200,000. He had a country home in, in Muskoka District worth 187750 and he had yet another country home near Guelph, which uh, was worth a cool $175,000. Yet another property in Collingwood Township that was worth about twenty-five grand, and he owned loans worth $171,262. 
no mention in this estate of his stock in the Toronto Maple Leafs. And we still don't know all the details of why Harold Ballard was allowed to get that. That agreement that was allegedly in place, a lot of people were questioning it at the time, but nobody had any solid ground to actually say that Ballard didn't have a right to buy that stock. And we're still wondering about that. Here we are 50 years later. Our feature story this week, our final story as well. One of my favorite goalies in this era was Roy Edwards. I liked him because he came from a town not far from where I grew up, Caledonia, Ontario. Uh, I really felt bad for him when he received that fractured skull. I had a helmet exactly like him that I wore when I was playing golf. My mask wasn't the same, but I rigged it up on my pretzel mask with uh, Roy's helmet that he wore after, uh, or the type of helmet he wore. So uh, this is a nice story that Milt Dunnell gave us this week, and we'll uh, talk about Roy Edwards and a little bit about the other Penguins goalies as well. Roy Edwards gave more than the mandatory two weeks notice when he quit his goalkeeping job with the Detroit Red Wings last spring. He'd made a sincere attempt to resume his career after a skull fracture mended satisfactorily, but agonizing headaches and recurring dizzy spells were more than Roy could bear, and he finally announced his decision to retire well before the National Hockey League meetings in June, so that way the Wings would have ample opportunity to find a suitable replacement. The injury really wasn't a factor. Edwards was perfectly healthy again. He had become convinced it was the game itself, coupled with the erratic Detroit defense, which was causing his head to throb and his vision to blur. My nerves were gone and I was completely fed up with hockey, Edwards now reports. I was sick of the pressure and the traveling and all the rest of it, so I made it very clear I was packing it in. Despite Edwards' apparent determination, the Pittsburgh Penguins gambled $30,000 to claim him when the Red Wings removed him from their roster and placed him on waivers. The very next day, Detroit took Al Smith, a goalie from Pittsburgh, for the same price, so in effect, no money actually changed hands. Pittsburgh kept calling me and asking me just to come to training camp and give it a try. See, see how I felt about it. And finally, I just gave in, Edwards said, during the Penguin stopover in Toronto this week. Unfortunately, Roy says, I don't know of any better way to make a living than playing hockey. But Roy quit again when the team broke training camp. He said the more he thought about it, the more he realized he could not stand moving again. Roy says, I worked in so many places, Calgary, Buffalo, the Sioux, Portland, St. Louis, Fort Worth, Detroit. Now my family was settled back home in Caledonia. His girls were in school and he decided I just couldn't ask them to pull up stakes and move to Pittsburgh so I went home. Well, that lasted three weeks, and then the club called Roy again. Actually, Red Kelly made the phone call, and Pitt, the Penguins said they needed help and goal. And Roy says, so guess what? I weakened again. The day after I arrived, Tim Horton broke his ankle, and I was beginning to wonder if I'd made the right decision. You can't blame Roy. Playing behind a guy like Tim Horton with a coach like Red Kelly would be a very attractive prospect for a major league goalkeeper. But with Horton gone, Roy knew what the Penn's defense was going to be like. Now, Roy was hurt on what was a pretty normal incident at Detroit last season. It was a breakaway, and it was a game against St. Louis. Roy describes what happened. He says, Craig Cameron came in on me, and Ron Harris of our defense sort of threw himself at him, and they both fell on top of me. My head hit the ice, and that was the last thing I remember, falling with two of them on top of me. Next thing I know, I was waking up in a hospital. 
Well, partly with Roy's sensitive nervous system in mind, the Penguins now are dividing their goaltending assignments just about evenly among three players. Roy, of course, and the two men who share the job with them, Les Binkley and young Jimmy Rutherford. Binkley, believe it or not, started out in professional hockey not as a goalie at all, but as a trainer. This was in the long ago days when teams got by with just one netminder and if they happened to have a spare around, they had to find some other way of justifying his presence on their payroll. An extra goalie was a luxury no organization wanted to finance in those days. The late Jim Hendy, who was running the Cleveland Barons in the American Hockey League and cutting as many financial corners as he could manage, needed an understudy for Gil Mare, his regular netminder and he had his eye on Binkley an Owen Sound product who was widely known as one of the best netminders goalkeepers in amateur circles. So Hendy he sent Les Binkley to a school where he could learn to tend to minor injuries tape ankles and do all the other tasks a trainer is called upon to perform in the 1950s, that is. Don't forget that. And having graduated from what was probably a glorified St. John's Ambulance course, Binkley was appointed the Barons trainer, and more important to Jim Hendy and Les, he was the standby goalie. One injury he couldn't repair was to Mare, and Binkley was forced to go into the Cleveland Nets late in the 1960-61 season. Mare never did get his post back. In eight games, Binkley gave up only 11 goals, and the following year, he was installed as the Cleveland Barons' first-string goalkeeper. So how did Les Binkley get from uh, a trainer's position to a National Hockey League goalie? Well, Jack Riley, who was a Pittsburgh club president now, and he was a general manager of the Penguins when they came into the NHL, tells his story. Jack says that in 1966, when they were assembling the first Pittsburgh team for NHL expansion, one of his first acts was to buy Binkley from Cleveland in a straight cash deal. Jack says, I knew what a great goalie he was and that he belonged in the NHL. So Jack used his influence and Pittsburgh's money to bring Les to hockey's big league. Now 35, Binkley was one of the beneficiaries when the NHL doubled itself by adding six teams in 1967. He'd been lost in the minors and forgotten and would be yet forgotten if Riley hadn't gone looking for him. Now Binkley's a certified big league goalkeeper and obviously was this a good thing all along. Now, Les says, I always figured lots of scouts washed me out because I wore glasses and they thought there must be something wrong with my eyesight. Now I've changed my image by wearing contact lenses. They help me, in fact, because I can wear them under my mask. And now I have security, too, because when I'm done playing goal, I can always go back to being a trainer again. So all three of Pittsburgh's goalkeepers are small-town Ontario boys. Binkley, as we mentioned, is from Owen Sound, now resides in Walkerton. Edwards still lives in Caledonia. And Jimmy Rutherford's home is in Beaton, Ontario. Now, how's this for a coincidence? We're talking about Jimmy Rutherford, and exactly 50 years ago, we're talking about Jimmy, 50 years later, he just becomes the head of hockey operations in Vancouver. Uh, hockey takes care of its own, and it's taken care of Jimmy Rutherford very well. Uh, Roy Edwards, as this story goes on, said one of the things he disliked most about hockey is that you're forced to live in a big city, and Edwards said, I hate cities. They're crowded, and there's all that noise. Detroit was a dangerous place to be in. Pittsburgh's not bad that way, but you can't breathe fresh air there. It's worse than Detroit for air. There's always a lot of smog and dirt hanging in the air. You live in a city all the time. You probably don't even think about it, I suppose. But I come from a little place like Caledonia, and I get used to that good air. It hits you when you change. I'd say making that adjustment is one of the major problems in professional hockey because so many of the NHL players grew up in small towns. A lot of them become city guys, and good luck with that. 
But Roy says, not me. I can hardly wait to get back to Caledonia whenever I get a chance. One such opportunity to get home rose this week. The Penguins practiced early Tuesday, so Edwards had time to slip home for a few hours since they were in Toronto and Caledonia just a couple hours away. Les Binkley was holding court for a delegation of Walkerton fans that had come to see their hometown hero, and Jimmy Rutherford was having some discussions with his summertime employers. Where does Jimmy work? in the summer? Well, he's a goalie coach at the sports camp Mike Walton and Bobby Orr operate on Lake Kuchiching near Aurelia, Ontario. And there's a look at the three Penguins goalies in 1972 with the uh, game in Toronto this week. Milt Donald got a chance to talk to all of them. So that's our show this week, everyone. And what did we learn this uh, time around? Well, the Toronto Marlboros revealed that Gordy's Howe's other hockey-playing son, Mark, was going to suit up for the OHA Junior A team by the new year. But then questions arose, and it turned out that didn't take place. The Canadians and Blues made a tongue-twisting trade, but the names, as we said, were a bit of confusing. Roberto for Roberts. And we learned a bit about one of my favorites from that era, Roy Edwards, a great goalie who played for the Red Wings and at this point was with the Penguins. Here's some of the stories we're working on for next week's show. A promising Maple Leaf goaltender suddenly calls it quits. Uh, We'll get some answers on Edmonton's World Hockey Association team, but there were so many questions with that franchise. They didn't even have a decent rink to plan. We couldn't see how an Edmonton team was ever going to get off the ground. And we had news on who's going to be controlling the mess that is the Vancouver Canucks, at least on the financial side of things at that point in time. The 50 Years Ago in Hockey Podcast is produced by Andy Cole. Can't thank him enough for all his hard work he puts into this. This doesn't happen without Andy. Andy also produces podcasts, and if you're thinking of starting one up, get hold of me. I'll hook you up. I think he still has some time to help you out. The very popular Juno-nominated Toronto Indie Rock Group, the Rural Alberta Advantage, provides our intro and exit music. Ever get a chance to see them perform live? Don't miss the opportunity. They are going to start touring again sometime in the new year. Other musical pieces and sound effects are by Andy Cole as well. Our research comes from files from the Toronto Star, Toronto Global Mail, and of course, the many publications found at our sponsor, newspapers.com. You can find us each week here on the Hockey Podcast Network Every day on Twitter at at Hockey50Years, we have a Facebook page, 50 Years Ago in Hockey, a WordPress site, Hockey50YearsAgo.com, and you can get the podcast wherever you download your favorite podcast. Thanks again to everyone who tunes into our show. Things are starting to get more exciting as this season rolls on, and we hope you're with us all the way. On that note, we'll see you next time. When the ice